Issue 37 of The Blizzard is out now. Our latest edition features an exclusive interview with the disgraced former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, Mark Sanderson on the brief glory of Matt Letizia's favourite teammate, Ronnie Eakland, and Tim Walters questions football's environmental impact. All of this and lots more is available for just £12 or subscribe today for just £20 a year. From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, a look through the archives where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we first began in 2011. In episode 127, we feature The Nevilles and the Gallagher's by John Bruin, first published in issue 28 in March 2018. We don't give in and we don't stop. We are relentless and in the end we usually get to where we want to be. Gary Neville, 2004. I've got 87 million in the bank. I've got a Rolls Royce. I've got three stalkers. I'm about to go on the board at Manchester City. I'm part of the greatest band in the world. Am I happy with that? No, I'm not. I want more. Noel Gallagher, 1996. Those with time in their hands in the closing weeks of 2017 will have found that two sets of brothers who came to prominence in the 1990s have become almost unavoidable. Noel and Liam Gallagher were hitting the promotional circuit hard for solo albums, while Gary and Phil Neville, rarely far from a microphone in any case, were stepping up their own operation. Sky's Class of 92 full-time was heavily trailed through December, the third such series featuring the Manchester United graduates, enjoying a new home and satellite TV after two previous outings in BBC television. On certain evenings, it was possible to hear Gary Neville co-commentating on a Premier League live match, relive a key moment in his Manchester United career in one of many retrospective programmes in the Sky Sports Premier League HD channel, and then tune in to an episode of him and his old mate's trials and tribulations as co-owners of non-league hopeful Salford City FC. Someone listening to BBC Radio was also highly likely to catch the nomish thoughts of Phil Neville on those same matches his older brother was commentating on. Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes have made their own way into the media, and David Beckham remains a face for billboards and business ventures. But of that United cable, the Nevilles have truly lived up to the busy label that Yapstam infamously gave them in his 2001 autobiography. Somewhere in the decision-making hub of B-Sky-B, a Sky Sports Neville HD channel was surely being brainstormed. Elsewhere in the schedules, those same execs perhaps considered offering a channel to bear the name of Oasis, in the fashion the mystifyingly popular Dutch violinist and conductor Andre Rieu has been honoured on a couple of occasions. The Mancunian candidate brothers Gallagher's and Neville's Blue vs Red, Debauchery vs Dedication, Rebellion vs Respectability, but sharing a powerful ambition that eventually led them to conquer respective horizons, are the strongest survivors from English football and pop life in the 1990s. It is a decade close enough to be recalled, yet distant enough for the factual to blend with the apocryphal as nostalgia is embraced. It was also the first time that football and music were celebrated together within British mainstream culture. A meeting of such minds became inevitable, and it came to pass when Noel Gallagher was a studio guest for Sky's broadcast of the Manchester Derby in December the 10th, when the elder Neville's usual assurance was broken by an early pre-match dig from Gallagher Major. It's great to be here sat beside a football legend and Gary Neville, said Noel. 
As Graham Souness smirked to his right and Neville rubbed his face in weary acknowledgement of banter well aimed. The pair are previous sparring partners. Back in his playing days, Neville, a confirmed Oasis fan, once asked Noel to sign a Union Jack emblazoned guitar, only to have it returned with the following legend. Dear Gary, how many caps have you got for England? How many have you deserved? I'll tell you. Fucking none. Lots of love. Noel Gallagher. MCFC. The younger set of siblings are hardly much less visible. Liam Gallagher's debut solo album, As You Were, became the fastest-selling vinyl record of the last 20 years, as he carried out an intense promo schedule that largely consisted of bad-mouthing his estranged brother. He also sold out a concert tour for the following spring. Liam and Noel, who have barely spoken since Oasis's final bust-up in 2009, with a star turn of separately recorded voiceovers in Supersonic, the 2016 documentary broadcast on BBC2 over Christmas. And in January, Phil Neville, whose myriad media appearances have included admitting live on the BBC that when coaching at Valencia he became an enthusiast all over body hair removal, became the surprise successful candidate to be head coach of the England women's football team. Beginning his tenure by having to apologise for some 1970s style chauvinism on his swiftly deleted Twitter account, took him straight to the front pages and opinion sections. Liam, who follows precisely zero people on that same social media platform, does not have to apologise for anything he pens to 2.77 million expectant followers, or Parker Monkeys, as his brother dismissively labels those sporting Paul Weller haircuts and expensive anoraks who never wanted the mid-1990s to end. After all, that was a time of lad culture, when the nation's favourite sport and its key cultural export of pop music could be celebrated together in a wash of continental lager, and off-white powders. Previously, football had only made small imprints and pop music. In 1967, the Beatles' Sgt Pepper had featured the Liverpool forward of the 1950s Albert Stubbins on its cover, and John Lennon had even name-checked Matt Busby on Dig It on 1970's Let It Be album, but in general, aside from Rod Stewart's kicking of footballs into his audiences and a Robert Plant post-Led Zeppelin solo American tour being staged in front of an enlarged Wolverhampton Wanderers motif, such things were kept on the lowdown. Football was not yet showbiz or credible enough to be associated with the music industry, in which cool is highly important. John Savage's 1966, the year the decade exploded, guides the reader through the key political and social happenings of 12 vital months in pop's golden age, yet allows just a single sentence to mention Jeff Hurst, Bobby Moore, Alf Ramsey and all that. The game's post-Italia 90 surge in popularity meant everyone now had to care about football. From Tony Blair's half-truths about being a Newcastle United fan, the artist Damien Hurst lionising Leeds United, to the alternative comedians David Baddiel and Frank Skinner, becoming huge TV stars off the back of Fantasy Football League. Damon Albarn, lead singer of Blur, Oasis's posher and distinctly arty arch-rivals, suddenly became a beer-swelling Chelsea fan. I started out reading... Nabokov, and now I'm into football, dog racing and Essex scales, he told Loaded magazine. If Kurt Cobain had played football, he'd probably be alive today because he wouldn't have been so self-concerned, said Alban of Nirvana's frontman in 1995, Cobain having committed suicide via a combination of gunshot wounds, depression and heroin in the previous year. It was a time when such comments might raise eyebrows, but not cause the rapid shamed and end of a career. In September that year, Noel Gallagher escaped serious censure for telling the observers Miranda Sawyer that he hoped them to, Alban and the Blur bassist Alex James, 
would catch AIDS and die. If the 1960s was an era that if you can remember, then you weren't there, then the 1990s is a little different. The hedonism was just as intense, the drugs far more available to the common man rather than being restricted to, say, the artistic elites of the bohemian Soho scene, and although a few things remain enticingly out of reach, plenty remains accessible. There was nothing like the reckless wiping of key cultural monuments such as the early editions of Top of the Pops, Match of the Day, or episodes of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Not Only But Also that occurred at a cost-conscious BBC. Reliving in the 1990s is often little more than a keystroke of a computer or the click of an Apple way. The internet brims with the social media accounts and podcasts in which the good old days are recalled. That is especially true of football. The advent of the Premier League meant each match was given proper TV coverage, with every goal preserved to be sliced and diced into the endless retro programming that now fills holes in schedules. In a certain sense, one that can never please a purist, English football did actually begin in 1992, or was at least regenerated into the entity recognised today, and far beyond the shores of the British Isles. This was only the beginning of a boom that is yet to be halted. In terms of pop music, though, the Britpop movement of which Oasis were the best-selling artists was the last great boom for the record industry as it had existed since the Beatles era. Fans would still queue to buy new releases and most young people knew the title of the number one record in the top 40. By the start of the following decade, the arrival of the internet as a content delivery system was beginning to cut into the bottom lines of record companies, many of whom had since folded or amalgamated into the rump of an industry beholden to internet giants like Apple, Amazon and Spotify. By the mid-2000s, even the Gallaghers, who had sold an estimated 27.5 million copies of their first two albums worldwide, were forced into maintaining a live presence to generate revenue, with their final offering, 2008's Dig Out Your Soul, only able to shift 1.6 million copies. Their eventual demise coming after a backstage row in Paris the following year, was a reminder that the fun will always have to stop sometime. If the Nevilles were members of the best English football team of the 1990s, a pair of teachers' pets amid Alex Ferguson's unrelenting United, then during the same time, Oasis was similarly all-consuming and difficult to shake off. The sound of Liam's Lennon-Lydon hybrid voice and Noel's war of guitars were a keen and constant on radio, television and in shops, garages and pubs. As an explanation disputed by Noel Gallagher, presumably because he feels it was his songwriting and musicianship that won him millions of ears, Owen Morris, producer on Oasis's first three albums, Definitely Maybe, What's the Story, Morning Glory and Be Here Now, the difficult cocaine-sodden 1997 third album that was the beginning of the end of the Oasis empire, has suggested that the band's pervasiveness was down to a technique of ultra-compression in mastering the records that their songs would be heard over anyone else's. I was the first cunt to use brick walling to make CDs be on the fucking red line constantly, said Morris, in a retrospective of definitely maybe. There are no dynamics, it's just full on, all the fucking way. Jukeboxes around the country, man. For that first fucking year, Oasis was louder than everybody else. Whatever the truths behind their dominance like United, Oasis was simply everywhere, and even helped their own club city gain significant cool in unpretentiously wearing the replica shirts and training tops worn on Main Road by their then-manager Brian Horton and players like Alan Kernigan. Two siblings wearing the club's then-sponsored brother was a photo opportunity too good to miss, 
And when City at last signed a player who might have been good enough to play for United in Georgi Kinkladze, it was inevitable he would be celebrated in an Oasis song, always terrace-friendly in their structure and chorus lines. All the runs that Kinky makes are winding, and after all we've got Alan Ball, was the subversion of Wonderwall, the 1995 song that cemented Oasis's mid-1990s stranglehold. It was a typical piece of bathos from a long-suffering fanbase. These days Noel Gallagher sits in the Etihad Stadium exec boxes with the likes of the Smiths, Johnny Marr and Mike Pickering, the DJ and musician who helped establish the Hacienda as the most hip night spot in the world, but neither of them were known for supporting City in their 1980s heyday. Back when City were yo-yoing between 1st and 2nd Division and playing at Main Road, their most prominent supporters were the rotund comedian Eddie Large and Kevin Kennedy, who played unlucky in love Curly Watts in Coronation Street. Within the world of independent labels, whence Oasis came into singing Alan McGee's lotus-eating creation label, City's standard bearer was the late Marky Smith of the Fall, typically contrary in being blue in the United stronghold of Salford. The Gallaghers appeared the real deal as football fans, from Noel's recollecting that in the 1983-84 season, he attended all of City's matches, both home and away in the second division, to the way Liam's taunting, often thuggish persona, an 80s casual issue sportswear reflected how a die-hard but well-turned-out supporter was supposed to act and dress. Concurrently, certain footballers became celebrated as if they were two rock stars. In May 1996, BBC Two dedicated a night to the 50th birthday of George Best, in which the boozing, gambling and womanising were all key facets of his status, as the first and ultimate lad about town. Meanwhile, Paul Gwiggs McGuigan, bassist in Oasis, co-authored a biography of Robin Friday, a lower division player whose career and eventually life were lost to heavy drug use. Football was being viewed through the same prism of excess that rock music had been documented since the 1960s. The links forged back then have remained unbroken since, from the range of indie landfill hopeful bands with Noel and Liam haircuts that sit on the sofa of Sky Soccer AM each week, to the pop acts given the use of Wembley's deafening PA system ahead of major cup finals. Music has also become a significant part of the game's embracing and social media, with Manchester United using the grime star Stormzy for their announcement of Paul Pogba's world record signing in August 2016. These days, with revenue streams squeezed into their own industry, musicians are only too keen to attempt to get abroad the runaway money train that Premier League football has become. As Pep Guardiola's City takes the field at the Etihad in 2018, making their way past the £300 per game tunnel club, they do so to Oasis's role with it. Across town, United's home games get underway to the sound of This Is The One by The Stone Roses, a band made up of three United fans and one City supporter. It was they who inspired a young Liam to get into music, just like the big brother and whose stereo system he had once urinated after a night out of underage drinking and his nightly guitar sessions he had previously thought an act of social inclusion. Manchester is a city that remains protectively proud of its music heritage, even though the heyday now lies in the long past. Oasis were actually something of an afterthought to the Magister boom of the late 1980s and early 90s, arriving on the scene in 93 when the Stone Roses were in a cannabinoid haze while trying to piece together a disappointing second album, and the Happy Mondays had imploded with attendant drug and financial problems. Factory Records, who co-directed Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton, an uneasy alliance of United and City, who built the Hacienda in 1982, to give the city's youth somewhere to go off the back of Joy Division and New Order sales, 
had gone into receivership in November 1992. Associates of the class of 92 would tell you that a Manchester-based soundtrack is often playing when the old friends get together. And aspirant teenagers finding their way in a big city, the Neville brothers have been happy consumers of such sounds, if not the ecstasy-fueled scenes on tap in the Hacienda. It was becoming a young person's world, said the King cultural commentator Phil, in the original feature-length Class of 92 documentary from 2013. Music was changing, politics was changing, football was changing. Life in England was going along nicely, and then all of a sudden there was this razzmatazz. We were part of, probably, of a revolution in a way. In mid-1996, both sets of brothers found themselves at the fulcrum of two key moments of a period when the country actually felt good about itself. Years of rule by a decaying Conservative Party were set to end the next year under Blair's new Labour, and a previously flat economy was on the rise. The Nevilles, fresh from winning a Premier League and FA Cup double in their first full season as first-choice Ferguson fledglings, were both members of Terry Venable's squad at Euro 96, a summer now pitifully remembered as the last time England, the hosts, looked halfway decent at a major tournament. And the Gallaghers were meanwhile at their absolute stratospheric peak, with a pair of sold-out dates at Nebworth, Hertfordshire, that August receiving 2.6 million applications from fans. This is history right here, right now, announced Noel Gallagher as he took stage. In a closing soliloquy of the supersonic documentary, he recalled that weekend with a nostalgic regret. It was the pre-digital age, the pre-talent show age, pre-reality TV age. Things meant more. It was just a great time to be alive, never mind being an oasis. I've always thought it was the last great gathering of people before the birth of the internet. It's no coincidence that things like that don't happen again. If that was a lament to a youth long lost, his younger brother was a little less sentimental. It will never get repeated, said Liam. Not because we were greater or better than anyone else, but because we actually didn't give a flying fuck. To those of a certain age and disposition, the 1990s feels a bit like the last party to use the title of the 2003 John Harris book that details the rise and fall of Britpop, citing the victorious Labour Party's 1997 courting of pop people like Noel Gallagher and Alan McGee as a key reason for the movement's sudden collapse. Unlike football and music, rock stars and incumbent politicians did not make the credibility. In any case, the elder brother, guitarist and songwriter in Oasis had lost his touch in writing the songs that could make the whole world sing. Dwindling sales and kudos would eventually result. Though successful enough these days as a solo artist, his November release reaching the top of the UK charts, and a little like Gary Neville did in becoming the foremost colour commentator in English football, Noel has chosen to reinvent himself as something of a celebrity media personality. Journalists in the Yeti had mixed own following City's 4-1 defeat of Spurs on December 16th found themselves with someone different to grab a word with and get embargoed quotes from. It's getting embarrassing now, Noel said of Pep Guardiola's team. There's not even a hint of how it might go tits up. You don't get that from Fernandinho or John Stones. As that rare beast who admits he enjoys being interviewed, a magazine with Noel on its cover is still likely to sell, since he retains an instinct for what makes good copy, something that appears beyond the beige, vanilla likes of current megastars like Ed Sheeran. And for those websites that do nothing more than regurgitate others' first-hand interviews to gain clicks, the sight of the elder Neville and the Gallagher brothers' quotes being lifted and twisted are daily occurrences. Aging rebel rockers that they are, the Gallaghers will never take the path of respectability that the Nevilles have followed in becoming trusted broadcasters, national team coaches 
club proprietors, and in Gary's case, as an ambitious local businessman looking to make changes to the skyline of Manchester City Centre, where he is the front man for a plan to build a 39-storey skyscraper. With that project to be completed, it would register as a bricks and mortar memorial to a time when the Neville brothers became truly omnipresent. And not even Noel and Liam Gallagher, the only possible challenges to the crown of Mancunian mouthiness, could compete with that. If you enjoyed this, then make sure you subscribe and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Also, follow us on Twitter at Blizzard. That's at B-L-Z-Z-R-D. That's the best place to keep up to date with all things Blizzard between each issue. Thanks for listening and farewell.